Welcome back to So Hot Right Now. I'm Lucy Siegel. And I'm Tom Mustill. It's episode three, which is called Hail Marys, because we have not one, but two Marys and an Amy. They aren't just any Marys and Amys, they are trailblazers in the theme of this episode, which is about justice, climate justice. A quick warning, there is some swearing, including F-bombs, in the second half of this episode. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. The climate and nature crisis isn't fair. We've not equally contributed towards the destruction of the atmosphere in the living world, and we're also unequally affected as the damage we've done starts to damage us in return. Air pollution, extreme weather, rising sea levels, droughts, the spread of new diseases. People who are women, people of colour, people with disabilities, people with less money, people in the global south, they all bear more of the brunt of climate and nature breakdown. But for a long time, we didn't talk very much about people. It's just very unfair. Lots of the conversation about climate change and the breakdown of nature's technical is about carbon percentages and polar bears, not really about people or about human rights or about equality. This is changing. And this week's guests have pioneered this change, bringing these conversations to the halls of power, to social media, into journalism, and through new avenues of storytelling, like podcasts. Yes, and before we begin, we should note that we spoke to this week's guests before the death of George Floyd. But since then, we've returned to this conversation again and again, and we hope that you find it as helpful as we have. We begin with Mary Robinson, the first woman president of Ireland, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, UN Special Envoy on Climate Change and Chair of the Elders, a group of wise people convened by Nelson Mandela. An immensely impressive human, she kindly agreed to give us a 101 on a thread that runs through much of her work, climate justice. I'm so urgent about the issue of climate justice and so keen for people to recognise the layers of climate justice. I mean, I think there are probably more than five layers, but I can easily identify five layers if you want to hear you know, how, I, how I approach climate justice. Well, perhaps I think a lot of our listeners might never have even heard of climate justice. Could you explain what it is? Well, I came to climate not as a scientist, but from a human rights point of view, I was working on economic and social rights, the rights that matter if you don't have them, rights to food and water, health, education, shelter, women, peace and security issues. And I was also honorary president of Oxfam at the time, and Oxfam would wheel me out in different African countries. And I kept hearing this sentence, things are so much worse now. And the worst was the unpredictability. Farmers didn't know when to sow, didn't know when they sowed, whether the it would be okay to harvest because you had flash floods, you had long periods of drought followed by a flash flood, you had heavy um, cyclones in parts of the world that never had cyclones before, like Southern Africa, and it was just getting worse and worse. And these were farmers with no insurance, no uh, plan B. I remember having a hearing with 
Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We were both elders and we were asked, elders brought together by Nelson Mandela, we were asked by Oxfam to be a jury, if you like, and listen to five African farmers. This was before the conference in Copenhagen in 2009. Four of the five farmers were women, which is true, that women do the majority of the farming. The one man was from uh, Kenya. He was a pastoralist. He was down to his last 20 goats and you, from a herd of 200 because of the drought. And you could sense in his voice, he didn't feel he'd have any at the end of the year. Uh, the other four women were very impressive, particularly one from Uganda, Constance O'Kellett. She's become a very good friend of mine, even though we're very different. She lives in a small village and she's a farmer, but she's a grandmother like me. And we, we bonded in different conferences on climate because she became a voice for uh, frontline workers. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she's part of the layers that I'm talking about. Can I, can I explain my five layers of climate justice briefly? Please, yes. The first layer is this one that I've been talking about, that it's those least responsible that are most affected, uh, communities and countries. Uh, people don't drive cars, don't have major manufacturing, don't have central heating in the parts of Africa I was visiting that were being disproportionately affected. That's the first layer. The second layer is the gender dimension. When women and men have different social roles, different power, different access to assets like training, banking, uh, land rights, um, then that makes a difference. The third layer is the one the children have reminded us about so vividly in the last two years, uh, under Greta Thunberg in particular, the intergenerational injustice, that we're not providing a safe future for them. The fourth layer I think is really important now as we try to come out of COVID-19, because it's about the different, the, the unequal pathways of countries. Uh, the developed world, Europe, the United States, Korea, Japan, etc. we all built our economies on fossil fuel. And now we're trying to wean ourselves off fossil fuel and go green, as we must. But what about the developing countries? Before Paris, they committed to going green in their nationally determined contributions, which they filed with the UN um, on the way to Paris, if you like. Most of them wanted to go green, but they said, we will need the investment, we will need the technology, we will need the training, we will need um, all of that help. And they haven't been getting it, but they've been finding oil and coal and gas. So what did they do? You know, if they don't go the right way, they will not help all of us, but it's it, that's a difficult issue. And the last layer of climate justice is what we are doing to mother nature. The extinction of species, the loss of biodiversity, the stupid way in which we think that we can go on with this uh, consumer waste, throwaway society. We can't. So COVID will probably help us also with that. I'm really struck by when you talk about the transition in the developing world, almost being the kind of opposite in a, in a, in a way. And I've, I've been interviewing people before, so I was interviewing um, someone from the indig indigenous community before, and they said to me, oh, it's going to be really hard for you guys. You've got a really big job to do because you're so addicted to oil and you're so addicted <laughs> to this. And I thought, my God, I so rarely hear that perspective. I mean, I remember the first time that I heard it, it was actually quite shocking to me. How do we get more coverage of other perspectives? And why is the microphone kept so close and in, in, in one area the whole time? 
I, I love the fact that you had that surprise because we had it on the podcast. Um, we were looking for a woman scientist who would tell us about the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. It had just come out with its 1.5 degree report in October 2018, and we wanted a woman from the south. We got this wonderful woman scientist from Botswana, Pauline Dubé. And the, one of the things Pauline kept saying, she said, you know, I have such empathy for developed countries because they're going to have such a problem with those huge grids and all those workers and how are they going? Well, here in Botswana, we're trying to get energy to poor rural areas, but you know, we can do it. We know what we're doing, but I have such empathy for developed countries. And that's a perspective we don't hear enough of. And it is important that we get these perspectives, which is also why I wrote the book on climate justice, 11 stories, um, nine of them involving women, but they're also two good men. Um, and it very much, uh, the human dimensions of how people are trying to become resilient and what, what they have to try and do. Do you think before people were talking about climate justice that the conversation was too technical, that it was all about parts per million and sort of maybe occasional polar bears and ice sheets, but not really about people and the effects on people? Very much so. Um, my first conference on climate, because I came quite late to this, um, was Copenhagen. And I couldn't believe when I listened to the conversation, this technical, you know, uh, paragraphs by paragraphs, stupid kind of focus on, you know, you know, an expertise which was very narrow and nothing about gender, nothing about human rights. So much so that the following year in Cancun with some other women, we formed a women leaders, uh, which was women ministers and heads of agencies on gender and climate. And we fought for a gender action plan, which we got eventually. And we also fought for human rights. That was what my foundation was doing. The Mayor Robinson Foundation Climate Justice was our entire work. We made ourselves redundant because we got champions <laughs> on doing that. But, um, you know, it, it, it was very shocking to me uh, it, it, to see the climate world being so far behind the normal development world, to be honest. Mm. And I think it was because it was scientists and then it was countries that had big oil, had very big say, like Saudi Arabia, very big hold on discussions. And, you know, countries that wanted to stop progress on a consensus large format were well able to do it. So the climate world was way behind on gender, human rights and people. Do you think that I've been really struck with the obviously we're in this COVID-19 epidemic at the moment and there's a lot of communication going on about it. And one of the main things that people talk about is the number of people who've died. And I've been wondering, you know, what in climate we, we kept talking about uh, it would be the same as saying how many virus mm. particles were circulating for so long. We've been talking about the chemistry of the thing rather than the impact on the humans and uh, with what you've been doing of bringing the human impact and the human mm. stories and the framing mm. of the different ways that this leads into people's lives. Do you think that climate justice will actually help accelerate uh, us taking on climate change effectively because it, it people can relate to it because you've made it about people? I, I do agree that it was very difficult to get people to realize how many people were dying because of the impacts of the climate crisis. Uh, dying because of flooding, dying because of fires, dying because of a drought, you know, it, 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 because they were people far away. That was something I kept coming across. You know, that's not us. Now, what COVID has done, it's us, it's all of us. Uh, it's not a great leveler. That's a mistake to say that. Uh, it has actually exacerbated the inequalities 
the inequalities, the intersectionality, but, which is a very feminist idea, the intersectionality between poverty, gender, race, uh, disability, marginalization, being indigenous, etc. Uh, you can just see how it disproportionately exacerbates um, all of that. And this means that we have to be talking about people at last, and we've got the attention. And we've actually, um, when I talk about COVID-19 now, I quite often say we have lessons that we can learn. I'll just mention a few briefly. First of all, that human behavior matters. It's our human behavior that's really the only safeguard against this virus at the moment. And we're told to stay at home and to wash our hands, et cetera, et cetera, to protect the elderly like me, but also to protect health workers, to protect the health systems, the care workers, the, the, the essential workers, often them low paid cleaners, bin removers who are helping to keep our society running at the moment. Um, so that's the first lesson that people matter. The second one is science matters. We have to listen to the science. So hopefully we listen to the climate scientists. The third one is compassion matters. Uh, we're seeing a neighborliness all over the world. We're seeing people provide for those less able to cope, food parcels, food, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and compassion um, means um, an opening to the suffering of others. And I think studies have shown you are more open to the study, to suffering of others if you're suffering yourself. And that was what was missing on the climate issue. We weren't feeling what was happening. And there are lots of other examples of collaboration and that we could go into, and government matters. We're going to see very raw uh, analysis of governments that were too late, that were minding their own ambition too much, that didn't take it seriously enough, and the deaths of their populations and the numbers infected. It'll be very, very clear when we do the analysis subsequently. It seems extraordinary, but there is also what I would, what I would define as a pushback against climate justice from within the climate movement. I'm very aware of this on social media, for example. So there's kind of rationalization that the environment is the only thing that matters. The natural world is the only thing that matters and actually putting people into the framing is complicating the situation. Are you aware of that pushback and do you see it as um, significant as a problem? I'm not so aware, possibly because I'm not on social media. I'm, I'm an elder and I just, I, I, my life is too busy and I just don't have time to do all that. I, I, I've learned new tricks, as you can see. I can Zoom now and I can share Zoom meetings and I can record, uh, you know, I'm Zoom. learning. And, and, and it's good that I'm learning because this is going to be our world. It's going to be much more virtual in the future, no matter what happens. But um, what I'm finding uh, is... Uh, that, as I said, you know, there are these lessons from the COVID that surely carry over. Um, people are more conscious now of nature. That's true. They hear the birds. They, clean, they breathe fresh, clean air. You know, in New Delhi, in Beijing, surely they won't go back to the very bad pollution. And yet China, as one of the first countries coming out of the, the COVID-19 crisis, is opening more coal plants than ever, I'm sorry to say, as a, trying to boost its economy. Uh, we need good leadership now leading us to build back better, greener and more people-centred. And what sort of stories do you think that we should be communicating? And I, how, how can we energise a very, you know, beleaguered people yeah. <laughs> and, and, and get them excited 
about a future at this point because sometimes you know you, you wake up in the morning and you kind of get that reality check yeah. when you realize where we are and it seems it seems like a hard thing to do yeah no i agree we have to acknowledge that covid 19 is you know a terrible terrible pandemic which has affected health lives but also economies livelihoods hopes of people think of young people i have um uh, six grandchildren the eldest is uh, 16 um and you know they're they're they they feel kind of what what is life well, what's going on and uh, you know I, I, when i listen to them i feel i never had to think about things like that they've learned as they said to engage more with each other which is a good thing but coming to um, you know, if we want to get, have any credibility, we have to sequence and we have to sequence the reality of COVID-19. That's where everybody's head is now, uh, trying to cope with that. But in trying to cope with it, we have to cope with it in a pathway towards uh, understanding that we need to emerge building back better, which is not business as usual. What was it that brought about this pandemic? I mean, increasingly, scientists are seeing the connection between um, our um, you know, way of dealing with issues in our world. I mean, uh, we've had intensive farming. We've mixed farm and um, live animals. We've helped to create the conditions where the virus would spread uh, between animals and then from animal to human. This pandemic was not unforeseeable. Um, I have another elder, Gru Brundtland, a wonderful woman who um, is the mother of sustainable development. She had a great report on sustainable development. And she heads, co-heads a body that predicted last September, wrote a report for the world under the WHO, that we must be very wary because there could be a terrible pandemic because of what was happening. Um, so, uh, you know, we cannot go back to the mistakes we were making. We have to go back better, but we have to do it with an understanding of where people are and their worries and their fears and somehow uh, have a leadership. And I do believe, and the elders believe very firmly that we need global leadership on this. Um, we need the world to uh, be more concerned about getting a vaccine quickly because that's important for the economies of the whole world. Uh, there is a certain amount of collaboration, but there isn't enough funding by the countries um, that should see it as being totally in their economic interests. Um, it would save them billions if we can get the vaccine even a few months sooner. So why not work more together to do that and the therapeutics that will help us and then make sure that we get it to all countries, not to um, those who can pay. So I guess there's an important distinction when we talk about this to each other or we talk about this in media or when we talk about it, you know, between world leaders, which is let's not just get out of this and go back to how things were before as quickly as possible End the lockdown get back to life it's build back better hmm. Hmm. and i think that's going to be extraordinarily important and i'm seeing leadership from the european union on that with the green deal uh, there's a real sense that uh, the european union is in a position to influence and what a lot of european countries are already just beginning to do to open up um, germany france italy um, are beginning to open up and I'm seeing studies and analysis that it should be the green as possible. Did you see there was a study that came out of a poll of, of people and uh, they wanted the government, this was in the UK, to prioritise well-being much more than they wanted the government to prioritise the economy. And I wonder if, what I've noticed is before Covid, I would definitely spend much more of my time thinking about what things I wanted to buy and what nice places I wanted to go to. 
Um, but once I've had most of my life restricted, the things that I think about wanting to do are to be around my friends and family and to be outside and to be healthy. And I wonder if, because so many of us have gone through such a similar experience of having all of our options reduced and then thinking about what's essentially important to us, whether that might make building back better and focusing on well-being and human um, yeah, happiness easier. Yeah, I, I, I think by being sort of dramatically being brought back to basics mm-hmm. in every household and brought back to human relationships and brought back to, after all, as I said earlier, um, in a collective way, trying to think about those more vulnerable, those who are older, those who are susceptible because of underlying conditions, etc. Um, and, you know, uh, that that's a thought process in itself. And then uh, having more time to think, which we all actually have in a curious way. Um, and that, for many, is also coupled with huge worries. That's the that's what's eroding the kind of confidence. It's It's the worry about how am I going to be able to live at any level of what I had before. Um, but I think we're aware, and I hope we're increasingly aware, that we wasted so much. It was a throwaway society. And there's where, you know, um, elders like myself can provide a certain amount of wisdom. I mean, I grew up learning to darn, learning to sew, learning to put on buttons. My four brothers had hand-me-down clothes. We didn't have bottled water. We didn't have this throwaway, throwaway plastic society. Um, that came during my lifetime, and I'm not super old. And so we can have a very good, sustainable life um, uh, and a people-centered relationship life. And we need to ensure that we invest in health and education as absolute pillars of where we need to go. Well, as somebody who has worked around the fashion industry for many, many years, um, I'm so struck by how good people are at sewing. Like even people who've never done it before, they can pick it up really, really quickly. And also by how, how empowered they feel by being able to make a face mask or whatever. And I was struck when we were doing our podcast, we did a podcast on fashion and I was struck by how thoughtful people were beginning to be about slow fashion, about uh, no waste, about, you know, reusing, et cetera, et cetera, and local, um, local employment and so on. So, you know, there will be differences to how we see globalization. Um, there'll be difference to how we see long supply chains with a lot of um, additionality that we never counted, which is the carbon footprint and so on. You know, I, I think we, we really have a lot to think about. I feel like one big thing that keeps coming up in so much of how we talk about crises and how we talk about resources and climate change is is we keep making everything adversarial. We keep using the language of Mm. battling, of winning, as if it's Mm. some sort of zero-sum game that you can be safe from it and that person will lose and then you will be okay. And I feel like just... You know, I find this intergenerationally. You, you you see in the Telegraph, they keep whipping up sort of anger towards mm. young people who are, mm. you know, breaking um, the quarantine. Or you see it in the other way around with language like mm. boomer, you know. Mm. And But it's, it's ridiculous because there is no line you can draw mm. between humans with systemic problems like climate change and viruses. And no, how I, do we I, change yeah. back so it's a collaborative rather than adversarial mm. language? I think we have to actually go back to a framework or two frameworks that were developed by the international community, by all those member states in 2015. I I happened to be the special envoy of the Secretary General on climate change at the time, Ban Ki-moon. And 
I watched in September 2015, 193 countries agree the 2030 agenda with its 17 sustainable development goals. And the language was all about solidarity, leave no one behind, human rights, gender equality, etc. That's still the agenda for going forward. And then the climate agreement with its well below two degrees, working for 1.5 degrees, but then interpreted by the scientists, we all have to stay at 1.5 degrees. So that puts the pressure on how seriously we have to do this. And I wear this badge. I hope you can see it on my on my thing yeah, constantly nice. um, as a kind of reminder. First of all, it's the only badge of the UN I've ever liked, and it goes with everything. So there's no problem from a fashion point of view. But um, you know, for developing countries, we need massive debt relief now. And the debt relief shouldn't be unconditional so that bad leaders could just put it in their pockets. No, it should be conditional on implementing the sustainable development goals. That money should be, because the money is sort of there to be paid as big debt by all developing countries. Commodities have fallen through the floor. Money has been withdrawn from developing countries. Capital has gone back to um, the richer countries. So the debt relief needs to be linked to uh, sustainable de the sustainable development goals and very much people-centered. And I do agree with you. We just need a, a kinder language, a language of more empathy. And, you know, there is empathy at local level. There is empathy even at national level to a much more degree than there was. Um, maybe we can try and somehow supercharge that. Mary, um, I was uh, on, on your podcast, Mothers of Invention, your tagline is climate change is a man-made problem with a feminist solution. Um, could, you, could you explain uh, a bit more about why you chose that and why it's yes, important? Yes, I'm very happy to explain because it's very funny. Maeve will never explain. <laughs> no, I'm not going to bother explaining, but I, I actually do think it's important to explain. Uh, man-made is generic. Uh, it includes all of us. And a feminist solution involves hopefully more and more men. That's the key. And the feminist solution is that solution that sees the intersectionality that I mentioned earlier between poverty, gender, race, um, uh, marginalization, indigenous, uh, people with disability. It sees that connection very, very, very well. And, and COVID-19, as I said, has exacerbated all of that. So uh, you know, we need to be more aware of vulnerabilities and of the need for a problem-solving, collaborative, non-macho, non-hierarchical uh, way forward, if possible. And we need more cabinets that are balanced between women and men, because they will give better solutions. It's better for humanity. And we need, uh, I mean, I hope, I mean, we were going to mark uh, Beijing plus 25 at the UN level and hopefully, um, you know, in civil society, etc. this year. Um, we're, it's been put off now to next year because it's just not possible um, to do it uh, in that way. But actually, um, I'm hoping that as we build back better, the building back better will include gender equality and gender parity of voices at all levels. That, uh, you know, women will be in there um, equal in cabinets. Women need to be equal on boards of companies. Women need to be equal in the trade union movement, in civil society, right across the board. And then... Um, we will get more of the problem solving. I mean, the point has been made, and I don't know whether you've covered it, but a lot of people are covering it. Women-led countries are doing better in coping with COVID. You know, look at... I've uh, noticed Ang that. Yeah, Angela Merkel and the um, uh, prime ministers of Norway, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, etc. Um, um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, the woman, woman president of Taiwan. You know, um, because 
they, they, they're doing it in, in that way of problem solving, listening to the science, um, caring about their people and um, taking hard decisions where necessary. And I think this is, you know, this is a good way. And it, it's, not to, it's not to say these are only the characteristics of women, but they do come out of a more feminist tradition, which I do believe we need. That was the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Wow. Pretty cool. It's really cool. <laughs> Not every day you speak to a former president. That's the end of part one. Join us in part two for another Mary and an Amy as we continue our episode about justice and humans and how they have been left out of the climate conversation. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So as talking about people and injustice are brought into how we talk about climate change and environmental breakdown, the kinds of stories we tell, how we tell them and who tells them have started to change too. Our next two guests are innovators of climate storytelling, Mary Heglar and Amy Vesterfeld. If you haven't come across them before, they are writers, journalists and podcast hosts. When Tom and I first started talking about doing this podcast, we really, really wanted to speak to these guys because they're doing a lot of things differently, as they'll explain. As usual in lockdown podcasting, we joined each other virtually. Amy from the west coast of the US, Mary from New York City, Tom from Hackney and me from Surbiton, the burbs. How is Surbiton today, Lucy? Oh, the sun always shines in Surbiton. Does it? Yeah, there's a Have lot you... of lawnmowers today, which is very Surbiton. How is, how, what's the swan, swan, baby swan situation in Surbiton today? Well, there were three cygnets. Now there is one. Oh, oh dear. And it's very stressful every morning to make sure that the cygnet is still there. I just can't wait for it to grow big enough to defend itself. Well, have you? My friend's got these two magpies in his garden that, uh, that their, their nest fell out of a tree. And he's been looking, feeding them dog food and now they're almost old enough to look after themselves. But he found a crow, grabbed one of them. Um, one of them's called Toto because uh, it's got a funny toe. And he had to chase a crow away. And then the same day he had to chase a cat and the cat had grabbed the, the magpie. Um, but, they're, but they've pretty much learned to fly and they're flapping all around. And, uh, and now they're gorging on cherries. I need to tell you, there's, there's things that have gone on in this garden in the last few weeks, which it's like a horror show. I can't I think, go into it now, but there's I'm stuff not, that I need to talk to you about. I'm not sure I want to know. It's it's really what could, disturbing. What could be worse than two dead signets? Well, that's just part of it. <laughs> anyway, um, so <laughs> anyway, here is Mary and Amy. I'm in highly esteemed company. We've got so much to learn from you guys. And it's, it's just really, really exciting because, well, Mary, we nearly, I nearly met you. You're in London. Tom did just yeah. meet you. And then COVID hit and right. you, you had to leave as a matter of urgency. Yeah. How have I you been since? Yeah, that was... <laughs> 
Um, I, how have I been since? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I remember uh, going to, it was my first time ever going to Europe, let alone London. I was going to go to Paris after and eat all the croissants. And, you know, I was uh, <laughs> kind of like on my way there. I was like, how bad can it get in a week? Which <laughs> um, Now we know the answer to that. It can get really fucking bad. So, um, you know, ever since then, I guess I've been on this roller coaster with everybody else of how do you process a thing like this that no one's ever experienced before it was crazy right because you um you were halfway through the like one of the most interesting groups of people that had been assembled to talk about climate and mm -hmm. just had to change all yeah. of your plans and just get out of there yeah yeah it was a scary thing to wake up the next morning to um the president of the united states saying that he was going to close the borders to europe um, which, you know, at the time didn't include U.S. citizens, didn't include the U.K., but you don't really want to wait around for somebody to, like, realize their blind spot. So uh, the day that he made that announcement, I was on a plane as soon as possible that same day. Uh, I think that was the... Because I came to a talk you gave just a few days before, and I think that was, like, the last big like public event like, event with more than just a few people in it that I went to. Like, you know, when you look back and you think, what was the last thing you attended yeah. with lots of people together? Um, man, yeah. things changed since then. Um, I should also add that um, uh, I, when we first conceived of this podcast, yeah. I, uh, Lucy and I were talking and I was talking about people who I'd read who wrote about climate really, really well. This was like last summer. And uh, Mary, I was telling her, I was enthusing about you. And I was like, if we do this, we've got to get uh, Mary Hegler on the show. She's amazing. And um, and then you guys uh, went and made a podcast way faster and, and called it Hot Take. <laughs> and we were really embarrassed because we didn't know what to do because we'd already thought, oh, yeah, we'll call us so hot right now. We're like, oh, we're going to look so lame. So I wrote this extremely long and awkward email hoping that uh, we wouldn't be... Yeah, this is too 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 awful. And you very graciously said it was okay that we could also have hot um, in our podcast title. <laughs> I think I think almost all of the uh, the climate podcasts have some reference to heat or warmth. <laughs> I just had one more question, sort of on the kind of setup, really, which is I wanted to know a little bit about how how did you guys meet and start working together? Um, how did we meet, Amy? I think um, Mary actually listened to my other podcast and yeah. sent me a, a DM on Twitter. Um, so I have a podcast called Drilled that's a uh, true crime podcast about climate change. And it's really cool, by the way. Thanks. Uh -huh. <laughs> We're major um, fans. Oh, good. Uh, so Mary sent me a, a message on Twitter, and then um, I was coming to New York, like, soon after that. So we yeah. – um, we met up for coffee and then, uh, and then actually, I actually, um, interviewed her for an essay that I was working on about, it ended up being called the case for climate rage. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, so she was like, who do I yeah. talk to about that? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, who are all the other people that I know who Who's are mad pissed? about this? <laughs> no, I, yes. I, yeah, I DM'd Amy because, um, I was, trying to put together like just like a small dinner party of climate women in New York City. Right. Um, and then nobody knew where Amy lived. 
um, because <laughs> she's they like off the, the grid. So I was nowhere. like, maybe she lives in New York. No. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> basically. Yeah, so that's how we met. It was last summer. So, like, honestly, we haven't that's even right. known each other a year. Wait, where do you live? Because your background, as we talk to you now, is the Northern Lights. So you could be in <laughs> Finland for all I know. Yeah, I live um, I live in the Sierra Nevada mountains, kind of between California and Nevada. So West Coast in the U.S., yeah. I was in New York, so we've always kind of, someone asked us for a picture of us doing the podcast together, and it's like, we've literally never done it in the same we've room. We've never done it in the yeah. same room. Yeah, I don't think there right. exists a picture of the two of us together so outside yeah, of the illustration for the podcast. So like, it really is, a, a like, we've met a few times, um, but it really is a friendship that grew out over long distance. Mm-hmm. A friendship founded on being pissed off. Yeah, about basically. People were talking about climate change. <laughs> yeah, great. Yes. And what were you? What were you pissed off about? Like, what was the? What was the source of the? Of the rage. Um, <laughs> for me, it was like mostly being told constantly by you know, well, a that like a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, basically white men were self-appointing as narrators of the climate story. And then also telling everybody else that, like, they could only talk about it one way. <laughs> um, so for me, I, you know, I've been a climate journalist for 20 years and have had just, like, waves and waves of men telling me, like, not to be emotional, uh, not to be angry, um, not to point the finger or blame fossil fuel companies uh like just loads and loads of those kinds of of messages and I knew Mary had had um kind of similar experiences working in the climate movement and and being sort of narrative and tone policed a lot uh so Mary you share all the things you're mad about (laughs) I'm mad about that I'm mad about like basically um the world being set on fire and then everybody else being told that like me having me be told that I'm the arsonist when I absolutely the fuck I'm not. Um, yes. I'm, I'm mad about the yeah. gaslighting of the fossil fuel industry. I'm mad about the inadequacy and impotency or deliberate impotency of our governments to stop them. Instead, they just like pour more fuel on the fire. Um, I'm angry about people of color basically being told like, shut up and we'll get to your human rights later on. Um, and they're not part of the same conversation. Like, I'm mad about the whole thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot to be mad about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, when I first came across you guys, and, and uh, it was through Mary's writing and then through your podcast, I got to say, I found it such a relief to listen to people talking about emotions and talking about being angry and yeah. not being polite about something that is so unequal and unfair and stupid. I found that yeah. really... Like, why haven't we been doing this for longer? Because it's been so yeah. restrained and it's been like hand, like yeah. kneecapping our, our conversation. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we wanted to be able to like get mad and crack jokes and, you know, drop F-bombs in a podcast about climate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to just like talk about how to talk about it better because it's, it's mm-hmm. very apparent that people don't know how to talk about climate change. They don't know how yeah. to have an honest conversation about it. Whenever they try, it's all about like equations and physics. And this is so much more than that. Um, or when they try to get into the emotional aspect of it, it's all about hope. And like hope doesn't build a movement. Hope doesn't, mm-hmm. like, hope is what happens after you've taken action. 
um, is not what you need right. to take action. Um, so, right. and just like talk about all the ways that people have been left out of this conversation and how apparent that is in mm -hmm. what gets published and how the story is told. If you could um, kill any story, like any narrative that is constantly wheeled out, what would be your number one target? Oh, well, mm. actually, I think that over the past few years, since 2018 specifically, um, the IPCC report really changed a lot of things about the way that we talk about climate change. Um, I think there's still a lot of like zombie narratives out there, but that, that took care of a lot of them. What's uh, a zombie narrative? A zombie narrative is a narrative that like you try to kill it and it just keeps coming the fuck back. <laughs> um, so one of them, for example, was that people of color don't care about climate change. Like that, like I, I can't tell you how many times I have people tell me that to my face, which is very much of color. <laughs> like, I'm standing here telling you I care about it and you're telling me that I don't like what the fuck how the this is ridiculous um, mm. so that was a zombie narrative for a really long time another one was that we are responsible for climate change and I think that will probably we. be my top one to get rid of right now because it's coming back in the form of uh, around corona it's like we are the virus and nature is healing that's yet another iteration of we are causing climate change when we absolutely are not as individuals we're not it's a handful of extremely powerful extremely rich people also my groceries are delivering so i'm gonna step away for like two minutes <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's fine we're happy to go with a real world scenario in fact we, we like that I, uh, it's interesting with the um the, that story of it, of it being blamed on us, you know, and, and obviously yeah. consumer actions are important, but there's often no alternative that isn't destructive in, within a system that's been created for the benefit of people who aren't necessarily us, who aren't taking the blame. You know, you can see it with the really small difference that's been made in all of us staying at home and not flying and being stuck. Yeah, like, exactly. It's, it's yeah, I just wrote about that, that like actually what this is showing us is that individual actions will not solve the problem and like you know no one I don't I feel like no one who actually really works on climate extensively um thought that they would but <laughs> but it's a big proof point and and I hear like I keep people keep asking me you know um what does the coronavirus you know tell us about climate action and I'm like well it tells us that like you need systemic change, you need collective action, and you need mm. appropriate leadership. And that when, and particularly in the U.S. case, it, you know, when your leaders see a problem coming, know the solution and avoid it, it causes a lot more trouble, <laughs> you mm. know? Um, yeah. I, and on the, like, the whole, you know, individual versus systemic thing, too, I feel like um, there's two issues to me there. Like One is that those things don't have to be in... Um, in conflict, like yeah, we need why is both. it always exactly. one or the other? Why are they put in conflict? I find this I so know. it's so weird. And it's why so is weird. It assumed that if people are interested in individual actions, that they're not yeah. going to be able to understand that this yeah. is a systemic well, issue, and, that and one, vice versa one too. Feed into the other, because right. it often does, especially around yeah. plastics, where I've done a lot of yeah. work with you know, community engagement and stuff like that. It's been a gateway for a lot of people who were shut out of this conversation. 
Mm. Yeah. I think vice versa too. Like, like there's a lot of people who, um, I don't understand the people who sort of perpetuate that dichotomy. I just don't get like, uh, I just think it's really counterproductive, but I've definitely had people say to me like, well, just the, the, the idea that like, you know, systemic change will never happen without, um, without individual action. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not arguing otherwise, you know? Um, I don't know. And then I also do think it's a real problem that the individual action thing is often so focused on consumerism and not political action that like, I find it so disempowering to be like, the only thing you can do is change the things you buy, yeah. you know? <laughs> When we have like so many other powers, like talking to yeah. each other, voting, taking political yeah. action, joining movements, you know, yeah. but it's always like, oh, if you're sad about this orangutan, buy this thing instead. And people yeah. know that that's not going to fix it all. It's so insulting. And I thought it was, it's refreshing hearing you guys calling it gaslighting, you know, the, the idea that we're being yes. gaslit, mm -hmm. that our realities are being manipulated so that we feel like bad people because we've uh, because of the framing of the conversation around things you know about the terrible things that are happening to the planet and making the right. make, as if it's our fault like ultimately right. when it's been very carefully constructed that narrative because it stops us from being able to do stuff to deconstruct yeah. the larger systems that are really accelerating this catastrophe i'm yeah, feeling yeah, really exactly. culpable at this moment why i've gone a bit quiet because i spent so many years writing those you know consumer don't buy this, save the orangutans with this toilet yeah. bowl or this whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, think I did too. I mean, everybody did. I think it's, yeah, sure. When I first started writing, I mean, a lot of editors were like only assigning that kind of stuff on climate for a long time too. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Which is, actually brings me on to my next point. Is Ma Mary's back now? Yes. Yeah, she's yeah. Back. yeah, she's yeah. back. She's mm -hmm. unloaded her orangutan friendly groceries and well i actually do i actually do get my groceries from a um a, a place that rescues food that would have otherwise gone to waste because that oh, is one of the individual yeah, exactly um it yes. is one of the few um it, it's probably the thing that i feel the most guilty about is when i waste food um mm, because yes. that does have a pretty big carbon footprint that people don't really think about and it's something i can absolutely control is not wasting food also, I'm afraid of my grandmother coming back and haunting me. <laughs> I had an anxiety dream last night about wasting food. Can I just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I just wanted to return to something there while I remember, if I may. We were just talking mm -hmm. then about um, individual action versus this collective action. And sometimes it's a little bit of a straw man argument, mm -hmm. whatever. But... Then you were saying, Amy, when I confessed that I used to write a lot of those pieces, you said, yeah, we all did, so do I. Um, and we were talking about what editors still commission, and a lot of them still seem to be in a slight sort of time warp. Is that an unfriendly thing to say? I'm never going to work again. So never mind. I think it's a but rut. A yeah. rut, yeah. yeah. Is that why you have, so your work now, you, you pretty much, you know, forge your own path don't you I mean you yeah know. I mean actually Mary do you want to talk about writing on medium too and how like yeah I know you have some feelings about that I like it <laughs> yeah we've talked about this a little bit on the show um I think 
in our earliest episodes. Um, so I got started writing um, because my my job was basically um, as an editor, not basically, it was as an editor of like policy reports for a big environmental think tank. Um, and I still work there, but I started to get to this point where um, I felt like you know, the way I make my mark on the world or the way to change this conversation might not be just decision maker to decision maker. Um, although I still thought that was really important, but I also, you know, in editing those reports to really understand them, you've got to like interrogate them and dig in there. And then you start to see all the bodies buried between the lines. And that's really terrifying. So I felt like I needed something to help process that. So I started writing on my own blog. Um, and I felt like either, um, the conversation would change and I'd have a body of work or like that, I don't know, I would just like keep this thing and keep processing it there. Um, and so then it started to kind of take off, but I would, I would go through this sort of like groundhog day type of thing where I would write something and it would be successful, so to speak. Um, and then I'd have editors reaching out to me to write for them, um, but they never really liked my ideas. <laughs> Only a handful of them liked my ideas. And so uh, they'd be like, oh, what else is on your mind? And then I'd list all these things and they'd be like, yeah, all that's dumb. How about you write this other thing about like, um, why don't you write about what it's like to be, you know, a climate woman and are you going to have babies? Um, or <laughs> why don't you write about like all the times you've been miffed as a person of color in the climate movement? So it felt like all these like efforts to tokenize me, um, or write about like what policies need to be implemented or trying to fit me into a very specific mm -hmm. box that already existed, um, and pieces of writing that were already either out there or that I just felt like weren't that interesting so i was like you know what i like my ideas and i'm mm. gonna write them any fucking way and i'm gonna write them on my <laughs> blog and i'm gonna write them my way um and i still find my i like i i feel for all the editors i work with because i'm not an easy writer to edit i have very strong opinions um i feel like i am doing something very i want to do things that are very different um, and I also am like half editor, half writer, which means it's like real hard to mm. tell me shit sometimes. Amy, Amy knows. Amy has edited me before. <laughs> How was it? Well, How was first it? of all, she doesn't need that much editing. And secondly, I Damn feel like, right. all, like all those. <laughs> that's right. And I think it's like it's important to uh, to point out that like you know, while it might have been hard to sell editors initially, now they're like clamoring to publish Mary. <laughs> so yeah, you know, once they've got me, write your own stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. But a... then once they got me, it's not, I'm not that easy to just be like, I'm not going to just roll over for edits. Like I, right. Well, it's great, isn't it? Cause like you, I mean, I hope people listening will find this pretty inspiring that you just went off and wrote what you needed to get off your chest and it right. found such an immediate audience and it resonated so much with people you don't have to go back to writing what other people think you ought to be writing because no. it proved an audience for the kinds of things you were thinking and the way you expressed them I, yeah um, it's it's also quite a privilege right because it's not my primary source of income um mm -hmm. i i have a, a full-time job already as an editor um, which, you know, I'm on sabbatical now to be writer in residence, but even that provides me with a protected income. So I don't need to, 
uh, I don't need to conform. I don't need to, like the money doesn't make a difference to me. So, you know, we can get to a point with the edits where it's like, well, we're either going to, you're either going to make these edits or we're not going to commission the piece anymore. Fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fine. I don't care. Yeah. You've got a bit, you've got power and you've got in, in that and you, you've got standing. But I mean, I would like to point out that you're a really gifted writer and oh, that every, everybody shouldn't think that because they are um, getting uh, edited heavily that 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 is always the editor's problem they some people may need editing more than yeah. you is what i'm trying to say <laughs> that's true i've also worked with editors who have absolutely made things better do mm -hmm. you think that there are um uh, that there are deficits in the like the system of how um things get published and commissioned do you think it needs to change yeah. do you think do you think it's blocking people yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean i um that was a big part of why, like I've almost entirely built like my own publishing mechanisms by this point <laughs> because right. I, um, you know, I tried to, I tried to like pitch the idea of the drilled podcast to multiple people too. And they were like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't see it working. No one's really done narrative for climate. Yeah, so can we just explain that this was the yeah. first podcast that basically treated climate as as a true crime story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, um, I, 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 like I, I had been a radio reporter for a while by that point, and I had wanted to start a podcast on climate, and I felt like at the time there were lots of podcasts on policy and science, and there were no narrative climate podcast so nothing that was telling a story and there's so many stories in the climate conversation so I happened to be covering a, a case uh, a, a climate liability case in San Francisco and this judge there commissioned or he, he um, mandated a a climate science tutorial that was almost like a history of climate science. He wanted to get a sense of, you know, who knew what and when and what they did with that information. And so I was sitting in this courtroom and there was like this very eccentric judge, uh, all these scientists, activists in their like Exxon new t-shirts, the oil company lawyers. And I was like, oh, this is great. All the characters are here. Um, and at the time, the true crime podcast thing was really starting to take off. And I thought this is perfect. I'm going to do it uh, like a true crime podcast and no one wanted it. So I just did it myself. I mean, I was like hiding from my children in my car, taping voice tracks and like, yeah. <laughs> and like um, put it out. And then now like I get, I, I had in the last couple of months, I had like almost every major podcast company call me asking for ideas for climate narrative podcasts. So uh, obviously I wasn't wrong, but it just like, it kind of requires that. And I, I, you know, Mary has done it on her own. I've kind of done it on my own, but I don't think like a lot of people don't have the, the resources or ability to do that. So it just mm -hmm. makes me think of all the people who are like, who are just being discouraged. Well, and also I think um, Mary and I both have like the sort of personality where, where we're like, well, fuck you. I know my idea is good. <laughs> <laughs> we're both stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so no, I'm just like, I'm sure there's a ton. Yeah. I'm sure there's a ton of people who, you know, get a no and just take that and never try again, you know? So, um, so yeah, I do think there's a, there's still a ton of gatekeepers 
in media and even in the climate movement too. Like I've, I've been, in fact, actually this rage essay that I wrote was prompted by, um, a climate list serve that I'm on where I sort of shared some thoughts on a particular politician's climate policies where I was just like, I don't know, it feels like they're ignoring this constituency and that problem and whatever. And, uh, like the initial response was, you know, let's not get emotional about it. And I was just mm-hmm. like, I'm so fucking tired of people in this movement telling me not to be emotional about like the future of humanity. What the fuck else are you going to be emotional about? Right. You know? <laughs> right. Like I hear that and I hear don't, let's not be human about this. Yes. You know, like I would like to exist yeah. with my emotional immaturity in peace. And <laughs> you're forcing yeah. me well, to grow up and I don't want to. Why do you think yeah. that people are so, uh, who clearly lots of people in the climate movement are worried about these things and they think it, it, they're really important issues. Why do you think that, that some of them would want to de-emotionalize talking about it? Is it because it's just too much? Because it's so scary yeah. and it's so big that it's a bit easier yeah. to sort of strip that away? Well, I think that's part of it. But I also think like this, the movement spent so long trying to like defend the science that like it got stuck in that mindset Mm -hmm. to a certain extent that like it had to be taken seriously and whatever. And it's like, you know, who's not afraid of emotion, the fucking fossil fuel companies, they go straight for fear and, you know, (laughs) fear all the time. Yeah. Like look at what you're up against. I think, um, I think it also has to do with, um, you know, I think the climate movement has been very white for a very long time, and mm-hmm. white people are not used to people not giving a fuck about their lives. They're not used to like the, it, so the 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 logic becomes like, oh, you must not know what you're doing. Therefore, let me prove to you that what you're doing is wrong and what you're doing is harmful. And then clearly, of course, you will change your ways um, because you are killing me. Of course, you will stop. Um, whereas, and you know, that, that is a highly rational argument. Um, and then to get to that point of like proving it beyond the shadow of a doubt. And like, now it's gotten to the point where if you're still falling for the bad faith denial arguments, like, honey, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so like it's been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt and they still don't give a shit. Okay. So now it's not just a scientific equation. Now it's not just an exercise in rationality. Now it's a fight for your life. And how do you fight for your life without emotion? Like life is emotion. And you, I mean, I've no, I've noticed on Twitter that you, you do attract some of these uh, bad faith actors as you might refer to them as, and you, I mean, on a daily basis, you're having to deal with pushback uh, from mm. people who just want to pick a fight with you particularly you Mary do you I mean how do you deal with that does it get exhausting um I did not know that I was attracting that because I have a mute situation on my Twitter where get on my nerves (laughs) one good time and you are muted and you are shouting into the void forever um so there are a lot of you know I'll notice that a a comment or a post has way more comments on it than I've noticed. And it's like, oh, I've muted a lot of people. So I don't know, maybe they are. <laughs> I uh, I remember seeing a post, there was uh, one of the big oil or gas companies was doing a, some sort of 
here, use this handy d- tool to calculate your carbon footprint. I think you yeah. know something like, bitch, what's yours? <laughs> it's just, just like, oh, that was so good. Oh, it just felt so good. Um, um, and I the was story like, Why behind we- <laughs> that is I was trying to report that tweet. Um, and Twitter kept crashing every time I tried to report it. And so I was like, finally, I'll just reply. Um, and <laughs> I was amazed by how many people saw that. Yeah, there's been a lot of, you're, you're very, very good at some of those snapbacks, which I must say, I have noticed a lot more than people having a go at you. Yeah. Which is, is the right side to be on. I yeah. just don't know. I felt really dumb. I was like, why haven't we been saying stuff like this for longer? Why have you been being so polite when like there's somebody in the room who's not telling the truth and who's trying to like wave a flag to distract you from something horrible that they're doing? Yeah. Why don't we just say like, bitch, what's yours more often? Like... <laughs> exactly. Like we don't need to be polite to these people. Yeah. Yes. I, for me, I think it goes... Respectability politics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's like there's been a long yeah. well, at least in the U.S. context. And again, I think this is part of the sort of white domination of politics and, you know, the climate movement in general. It's this idea that like um, there's some sort of genteel conversation that we can have to work it all out and come to some agreement and whatever. And it's like these are people who know that they're lying uh, pay to spread lies and um, will stop at nothing to squeeze as much profits as they possibly can out of their investments. That's all they care about. I don't understand why we keep um, sort of buying the lie that these companies are like good people. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, Yeah. I also I think it also goes back to the whole like you must not know what you're doing because what you're doing is killing me and I'm not used right. to people not caring about you know my life um, mm-hmm. so and yeah that, and we've gotten comments on our show um, or yeah on our podcast about like we're all upset about climate change but cursing doesn't fix anything well you know what girl we just got started with the cussing so like give us a minute you've had a couple of decades with the not cussing so let's try our way just like give it a second here quick draw (laughs) it's not hurting anything yeah i think the 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 f-bombs are exhilarating and um and also cathartic right because yeah we're grown-ups. We should be allowed to swear about things we feel passionately about. They're, they're, right? they're wonderful yes. words. Yeah. Also, if you look at you know what we're up against, me dropping an F-bomb is a lot more polite than them dropping like <laughs> carbon bombs all over the place. <laughs> right. You know, so if we really want to talk about who's being rude here, <laughs> it's them. Yeah. Right. In your podcast, you're very, you talk a lot about inclusivity and um, the importance of having like different voices from the ones who've been dominating the conversation for so long involved in it. Could you explain why you think that is so important and why you think it's so so like bad that we have had so such a limited like um, diversity of, of voices, origins and opinions in it? Yeah, I think, um, well, for one thing, uh, Amy and I are both, you know, of the demographics that have been left out for a really long time. And so it's like, important to us personally to have our voices heard. Also, um, Amy's written about this, well, we've actually both written about it a lot, but her Case for Climate Rage essay really does lay it out how, um, you know, the people who are, 
who look most like and have lived lives charmed almost as much as the fossil fuel executives maybe aren't going to have the best answers for how to fight for their lives. Um, and mm -hmm. people who have struggled the least in life are probably not going to know how to build a mass movement. Um, so I think that we've tried it with this group, you know, with like it being mostly white and mostly male for a really long time. And I think the, the data shows that that hasn't worked. Um, so we need new, we need more people in it. We, we absolutely are going to need people power to change this problem or to fix this problem. And so yeah. that means you need more people. And I know that there's this, um, I, probably some of the people you see arguing with me on Twitter, are, you know, arguing that I'm bringing identity politics into climate change, um, which is like all kinds of bullshit. Climate change was built on identity politics. Um, mm -hmm. So, and was built on the backs, like what, what those folks are referring to as identity politics is usually human rights. And the fossil fuel industry is built on top of human rights violations galore. Um, and so right. if we don't address that, when we're not addressing the problem, um, and that's just like not a movement I want to be in. You also just, you can't have racists and people of color in the same movement. It's not going to fucking work. So <laughs> right. maybe choose one. <laughs> yeah. You got to, you got to pick one and maybe pick the one that's the global majority if you want to win. Do you feel like there has been much movement in, in the last, I mean, you referred at the start of this conversation, we were talking about, there was a surge in climate coverage at one point, which has sort of been knocked off by um covid but um do you what, think what, wait what is what's covid coronavirus. <laughs> is that why we're all inside it... oh covid don't, don't worry actually about solved it. climate change believe it or not yeah if you go by the headlines <laughs> yeah it, it's all it's all fine it's, it's yeah. absolutely fine there's animals where they're not usually animals it's all fine hey i gotta say i do like the animal stuff yeah, um, yeah. Nice. yeah. I mean, you can watch. You can watch it all day. It's lovely. Let's face it. Yeah, um, but it's not the solution. But do you think that there has been any shift in handing the microphone around? Has there? Do you do you think that there is uh, more diversity now? Do you think things are improving? Yes, I do. Um, I think yeah. that people of color, especially in 2019. Uh, sort of rushed their way into the the mainstream climate conversation because it's never been true that people of color don't care about it. It's never been true that people of color don't talk about it. Um, but it's always been, their narratives have always been sidelined as environmental justice or like, you know, it's sort of like when you go to the bookstore. I don't know if you've noticed this experience, but like if I go to the bookstore and I'm looking for a book by let's say um, Alice Walker, who's a famous black writer, black novelist, um, I won't find her book in the fiction section. I'll find it in the black section. And that was what the climate movement had done to people of color for a really long time. Like, it's a novel. Why the fuck isn't it with the novels? Instead, it's in mm. the African-American section. Um, so that is, you know, the way that the climate movement has treated the narratives of people of color is sidelined um, and just like sort of put somewhere else. And I think in 2019, people of color were like, fuck that. Um, and they became both very vocal and very visible. Some of the most um, prominent climate activists, at least here in the United States, are people of color. Um, and 
climate activists in Africa, I've noticed, have taken on quite a bigger platform. Um, and I believe in Asia and Latin America, too. Um, and we don't have the luxury of as people of color of caring about either climate change or you know, police violence or immigration or voting rights, like all we have to care about all of those things because our lives depend on all of those things. Um, and so we've been like, we're going to be part of this movement and we're going to bring our whole selves to it. And we're going to connect all of these issues because they're not not connected. And also the way y'all have been doing it hasn't worked. So, you know, maybe shut the fuck up for a second. Bringing other people in does not mean... Now all the white men have to be quiet and never talk again. I feel like there's this very weird idea that like I can either be in charge or not involved at all. Right. And there's a wide spectrum of involvement along the way there. And um, and, you know, like supporting uh, a diversity of thought does not mean that you're not welcome. That's not what anyone's saying. Um, so I think there's a, a, a little bit of a defensiveness sometimes of like, what do you mean? You don't want me to talk? No, that's. I just want everybody else to talk too. You know, right. it's not a zero-sum game. Like there's right. lots of yeah, people exactly. to listen as well. Right, um, like you're yeah. not the soloist. You're you're in the choir now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Not being the soloist. That's hard for some people. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you. Um, I know you weren't here for very long, Mary, and your visit was cut short. But mm -hmm. what what is what are your perceptions of the UK media? and um, climate and nature coverage here? Oh, that's really mm. difficult for me to answer because I feel like I didn't get a chance to, you know, look at it at all. And the people I was surrounded by were people who are already very much involved in the conversation. Um, so I'm not sure that that would, would give me a fair uh, idea of it. Um, I did notice like when I was speaking, like sort of the looks on people's faces or like the things that people would say to me afterward was like, apparently a lot of the things I say are a lot more militant than anything that's being said in, uh, in, in the UK around race and climate in particular. Um, I also noticed uh, I had a lot of folks come up to me in uh, Britain to, do you call it Britain? What do y'all call yourselves? England? Well, that's oh, a really good question. That is yeah. a, that's that's a, difficult a whole one. other. <laughs> yeah. That's like an hour. My husband's from Scotland, so I have this conversation a lot. We, yeah. Do you? It might have changed by the time this goes out, honestly. Yeah, right. Things are going. Oh, God. So I'll just yeah. say London. Um, I definitely got a lot of people like going out of their way to tell me how fucked up uh, England was. It was very weird. Like, I would say, like, make even the slightest little remark about London or wherever I was. And people would be like, oh, but it's totally wanked. And I'm like, dude, we know. We know y'all are fucked up. Like, the whole world saw y'all Brexit. We know you're crazy. Like, you committed the whole colonialism and slavery thing. Like, it's not a surprise to me to find out that London has issues or England has issues. Amy, do you have any observations about how media here is covering nature and climate? Oh, she might have more um, than me, actually. She spent more time yeah, over there. Yeah, I... Yeah, so my my husband's from Glasgow, which is like a whole other story. Uh, but <laughs> but um, I'm I spend about like a month or so over there every year, um, and like consume, you know, the media there. But I feel like, um, well, a it seems to me like there's less climate denial in the media itself. 
in the UK. Mm. Um, I think definitely like the BBC way before any of the, I mean, some of, some of the U S uh, broadcast TV channels still kind of trade in false equivalency on climate and still will have like, you know, uh, a spokesperson from a known, you know, oil funded think tank <laughs> sharing their opinions on climate, uh, which, you know, the BBC outright banned a few years ago. So I definitely think there's a, a difference there. Do you think that climate justice is, as a term, does it have traction in the US and do people tend to understand what it means? Yeah. I think people in the climate movement definitely do. And even outside of it, it's starting to, you know, like... I think um, climate justice is far more easily understood than climate science. Um, I think... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So I... <laughs> That's I, a fair point, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, once you're like, no, climate justice means, the way I explain it to people, it means if you fuck it up, you clean it up. It's, that's right. really at the core of what it means. Yeah. I said, like, I, I've been trying to explain to people that I, like, I see climate as a power problem, not a science problem. You know, like, mm-hmm. you don't get a, you don't get a problem like climate change where we saw the problem coming. We knew what the solutions were, and a, f- a small group of people in power decided not to do anything about it. That comes out of capitalism, colonialism, mm-hmm. white supremacy. Like, you don't get climate change without those things happening first, you know? Exactly. So, um, and we don't, it, it's, not a, it's not a gap in the technology that's the problem with addressing climate. It's, right. it's a gap in understanding and uh, power and political will. One thing that I've seen a lot recently is people are talking a lot about population and it's become quite a loaded discussion. Yeah. Um, and yeah, would you talk a bit about that? Because I, I think it's something that is, is coming up and it comes up a lot. Um, Look, so I am for population control if we are starting with fossil fuel executives. I could get behind that. Um, The folks who are talking about population control, they're usually like, oh, there's too many people on the planet and that's why things are unsustainable. But if you look at the places where population is actually growing, that's where carbon footprints are tiny. Like you could get rid of the whole global south and still have a big ass problem on your hands because Mm -hmm. they didn't create it. So the places Mm. where actually the population is shrinking are the places that are creating the the carbon pollution so now what um also i think that um a lot of the time i i said this on twitter recently like okay population control people what is your actual plan like how are you going to do this give me who who you think needs to go and how you plan to get rid of them what's the number of acceptable people that you will accept and how are you going to get there Um, And what I got was a lot of people coming back to me with like education for women and girls and access to birth control. Honey, that is not population control. That is reproductive freedom. That is giving people more choices, not taking them away. Population control is has a very ugly history. And if that's not the history you want to bring with the term, then don't use that term. Use the term reproductive freedom. Call it what it is. So like if you especially if you want women of color in particular to get on board with it, because we've been, you know, unfairly (laughs) or sterilized against our will. We've had like our children killed in front of our eyes, like population control means a specific thing. So like Mm. if you're going to use the term, use the term right. But I also think a lot of people are using it to mean exactly what they mean, which is we're going to stop black and brown people from having children. And that's a problem. Right. 
Yeah, because I think the kind of, I can't remember the exact tweet. It was kind of brilliant, but you said something to the effect of, look me in the eye and tell me which population you're interested in controlling. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I guess what I was wondering is like, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who are really interested in the, in the novel ways that you found to do this, to even get paid sometimes to do this, to talk using words that you get to choose and talk about stories that you think are important. And I guess you didn't know that you, this was going to be something you'd be able to do and continue doing. Like, what, no, it was never the you, goal. What would you say to people like that listening who are thinking of doing something similar? Um, I think um, under, you're your first audience. Um, and so one of my favorite quotes um, is from this novelist E.L. Doctorow. And he said, um, you read a book to get into something, you write a book to get over something. And I think that's the same with any type of communication. So I am writing to deal with something myself. I'm writing to get catharsis myself. Um, And that is, I guess, what makes it so easy to be so vulnerable. Um, And so vulnerability is honesty. So focus on being honest and not on being right and being, there's only one truth and it's always yours. So just Mm. tell it. Okay, that reminds me of like something that I would tell my younger, earlier starting out self, which is um, is to like write what you want and what you know and not what you think will sell. Um, I think a lot of people in the, at least in the writing realm, get stuck into, you know, figuring out what they can pitch that an editor will take. And it's just such a like, it's... It's really unfulfilling to oh, me. Oh, it's I fucking think. awful. <laughs> I'm going to drop an F-bomb. And it's like, yes. You never know. You never know what they want. And it's exactly. and then they say they want something and they don't really. I mean, it's... Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So just write what you want and what you think like you'll be good at writing and what you have something to say something about and, and like start there. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I feel like I've been on holiday. Oh. <laughs> it's really... F bomb holiday. F bomb holiday. <laughs> <laughs> that can be the title of the episode. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We do really love to hear from you, so please write us a review on iTunes because it really helps us. And we haven't done a podcast before, so it's good to know what you think and whether we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, but I'm, I'm very thin-skinned, so don't be too mean. Yeah, don't um, be too honest, actually. I'd yeah, like to just take nice, that back. Mainly nice, constructive <laughs> stuff. Thanks very much. So it's goodbye for now until next week, where the conversation continues with an interview which blew us all away. And we can't wait to share it with you. So Hot Right Now was created by me, Lucy Siegel, and Tom Mustill. It's made by Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative and Picture Zero Productions. And our producer Woo-hoo. is megastar Natalie Jameson. Yes, she's woo. great. She tries to hide, so we've added her back into the credits, which <laughs> she's just deleted herself from. Nice try, Natalie. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. 
and we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.